Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. President Biden returned to Washington after a productive trip to Japan and South Korea. That included the fourth heads of state meeting of the Quad, Japan, India, Australia, and America, and yielded a series of major agreements, including new trade and maritime surveillance pacts. During the trip, Biden again, and for the third time on record, said that the United States would defend Taiwan in the face of Chinese attack. And again, his team stressed that nothing had changed in U.S. policy, that the United States remained committed to the One China policy, opposed Taiwanese independence, and supported peaceful dialogue and potential reunification between the two peoples. That message was stressed today by Secretary of State Antony Blinken during an address at George Washington University to the Asia Society, mapping out the administration's new Asia strategy. Meanwhile, Russia continued its war against Ukraine now in its third month, making incremental progress as it increasingly threatens to encircle Ukrainian forces fighting in the country's east. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, our very own producer, Chris Cervello, a retired United States Navy public affairs officer and the co-founder of the Provision Advisors PR firm, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations. And to commemorate the Memorial Day weekend, we will not have programming on Friday or on Monday, but our business podcast will be up on Sunday. Uh, Before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and our cyber coverage overall is sponsored by Northrop Grumman. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week. And tune in to the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, thanks so very much for uh, joining us. Uh, and uh, normally Michael Herson would be joining us, but the House uh, is out of session this week and the Senate will be out of session uh, next week. So he's uh, not going to be joining us. And obviously the thing that we would most be discussing uh, this week was uh, President Biden's highly consequential trip uh, to Asia, uh, as well as Antony Blinken's uh, uh, elucidation of the administration's uh, um, Asia strategy. Uh, Patrick, um, you know, give us your your sense on the president's trip, what the high points were, um, you know, because he, he managed to pack a lot uh, into this trip that is uh, actually quite meaningful when you look at it. Give us your sense uh, on what was accomplished. Well, Vago, the president has obviously traveled to Asia many times in his life, but this is his first trip since being elected as president. So it was a significant uh, voyage for him. Um, setting foot first in South Korea, not Japan, which is usually the other way around. And he also didn't go to China on this trip, which also was significant. So some symbol uh, symbolism there, in addition to some consequential meetings. Um, the meeting in um, uh, Korea started actually in Pyeongtaek, uh, in our military base and at the Samsung uh, facility out there to reinforce um, the fact that Samsung is going to be building a big semiconductor plant in Texas and that we're cooperating in deepening the technology ties with our South Korean ally. It's not just a military alliance. It's a, it's a much broader relationship that's going to be in, critically important because the new uh, president of South Korea, uh, Yoon Sok-yeol, is interested in, in having 
Korea be the great middle power, kind of a global pivotal power, as he puts it. Um, and, and Biden signed up and reinforced all of that, including in reaffirming the alliance and talking about a resumption of uh, major field exercises, um, upgrading uh, extended deterrence talks, and in, in those talks, uh, being willing to discuss the possibility of moving strategic assets, including strategic bombers, uh, under certain circumstances to be determined. Um, uh, we, North Korea was relatively quiet during this period. Uh, Kim Jong-un had been uh, at a state funeral, uh, a well-publicized one of one of his mentors, a, a marshal uh, who had mentored him. Um, the COVID outbreak uh, continues in North Korea, even while they started to say they were getting it under control. And they would be conducting uh, three missile tests, one ICBM test, uh, only after the president left not just Korea, but left Japan and was back in the United States this week. Um, so Korea went very well, and then he went to Japan. And in Japan, our cornerstone ally, um, it was uh, hit after hit. Um, great uh, discussions with um, Prime Minister Kishida uh, in terms of deepening and growing that relationship. They're both on the same page, whether it's dealing with Ukraine or whether it's dealing with China, or most importantly, the president rolling out the multilateral economic pillar of U.S. policy, period, not just of this administration, but this is the best we have in terms of going forward to try to build um, U.S. influence in the digital trade economy around supply chain security, um, clean energy, making uh, anti-corruption and uh, denial of tax havens, the fair economy. The, those are the four pillars of this IPEF, this in, in, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, a connected economy where the digital agreement, a resilient economy with supply chain security and uh, helping critical minerals uh, assured to our markets and to our military, uh, making sure we have clean economy with decarbonization and sustainable infrastructure, and then a fair economy in terms of anti-corruption. Um, the significant part about this, Vago, and I think the surprising part and the one that made the headline was that uh, 12 other countries signed up, including the quad countries of India, Australia, Japan, uh, as well as the United States, obviously, New Zealand and South Korea, and then seven of the 10 Southeast Asian countries, everybody but Cambodia, Laos, and Myanmar uh, from Southeast Asia are helped launch this IPEF. That's, that's more countries than were involved in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Um, and it was uh, a very auspicious beginning, even while the details still have to be negotiated among these uh, uh, 13 countries. Uh, and they have to uh, settle on one, two, three, or all four of the pillars because there is right. the option of joining uh, just part of it. Um, the quadrilateral uh, leaders meeting was consequential. This is the second in-person leaders meeting, but the fourth uh, quad uh, leaders meeting, all of which have taken place since Biden came to office. Um, and they've gone to see as that maritime security initiative now, which will help monitor and patrol, especially in the Pacific, uh, and help small Pacific economies with illegal fishing, will help with their uh, law enforcement, uh, a lot of that illicit fishing coming from China. So a critical um, kind of dual use uh, maritime domain awareness initiative um, that's going to be very significant in the region. Um, I think after the president came home, of course, the missile launch from North Korea prompted further discussions about what to do as, as China I mean, uh, China's not going to help us on even going to the UN Security Council, probably. Um, and as the United States is waiting for probably a nuclear test still in the coming weeks uh, from North Korea. Um, so far, they've just resumed the ICBM test, not right. yet the nuclear test, but 
the, the tunnel activity is continuing and a nuclear test seems imminent. Um, there are a lot more things to talk uh, about in terms of meeting uh, Prime Minister for the first time, Albernese, um, you know, uh, after three hours of being con confirmed, got on a plane to Japan um, and did put it himself very well. By the way, President Yoon did very well in South Korea. He's a complete novice in foreign policy. So that that augurs well for working closely with the allies, even even while their governments change. I want to go to uh, President Biden's comments from a bipartisan standpoint. There appears in Dove, I want to get your sense on the meeting as well, uh, that um, it, it was uh, a very, very successful and, and probably one of the most successful trips an American president has made in some time uh, that uh, it came from. Uh, uh, again, a, a right of center friend who uh, agreed with that characterization. Uh, let, look, just really uh, quickly, how different, what are the differences between TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, that, that basically uh, the United States never ratified, and in fact, the United States moved out of as other nations sort of pressed ahead with it, and then China did its own um, um, economic engagement in the region that ended up recruiting more people uh, than maybe we would have liked, um, that we criticized at the time. What's the difference between TPP and this new agreement, you know, from a functional standpoint? And, you know, is the United States Congress going to go along with it ultimately, right? I mean, does it become a victim of domestic politics uh, as it did the last time when, when Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump uh, all said that there was no way, you know, that TPP was going to get off, was, was going to make it through? Well, the... Indo-Pacific Economic Framework was essentially drafted by the Commerce Secretary. Um, TPP was always in the realm of, of being dealt with by the U.S. Trade Representative, and that's because it's a more traditional um, lawyers-based uh, negotiated trade agreement that would have um, provided the guide, guidelines for market access in various sectors. Um, agriculture was one of the you know, tough sectors, but there were new rules even on the digital economy. The, the, you know, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework uh, is mostly focused not on the access to a percentage of market share or, or, or even dealing with traditional trade sectors, but dealing with the new uh, economic sectors, especially the digital economy. So it's taking clean and safe broadband and, and writing rules together with like-minded countries, hopefully, on what the minimum standards would be, standards that China probably couldn't meet because they will be invited eventually to join if they meet the standards. But at the moment, um, it's these 13 countries that will negotiate even the terms of reference for who joins. But on export controls, again, unlike TPP, the export controls are part of our 21st century economy about how we're going to safeguard our technology so we can compete and prosper, but uh, also trade at the same time. And we're building a new system that we had during the Cold War, it's not like the Cold War exactly, but uh, parts of it rhyme and export controls need to be a part of the mix of how we protect our own security and prosperity through um, what, we, what technology uh, we, we deal with other countries with. Same thing with the standards on new emerging technologies like uh, artificial intelligence. All of those I'm describing are related to the digital economic aspect of, of the Indo-Pacific uh, economic framework. Some of those digital issues have been part of bilateral trade agreements that we have with Singapore, with Japan, with Australia, but they're not really part of the TPP, except for one small chapter on, on, on the digital. Um, this really is heavily focusing on negotiating these new rules. When you get to supply chain security, again, much, much more prominent in this IPEF, this economic framework, 
And then they're adding in things to also crack down on corruption and denial of tax havens, any bribery, which are tough issues for some of the Southeast Asian countries. And I suspect that's where we'll lose out, uh, you know, the Philippines and Vietnam and a few others. And obviously, uh, President uh, Biden's remarks uh, regarding whether the United States would go to war uh, over Taiwan in the event that it was invaded by China. The president said what he said uh, twice before. So this makes it three times on the record, three and a half times, if you include how he's alluded to it uh, in, in the past. Um, the question specifically was the United States you know, would not go to war for Ukraine, but will go to war with, um, you know, would it go to war for Taiwan? Uh, and the answer was was yes. The, you know, everybody in the administration uh, did what they always do, which is sort of play clean up a little bit and get out and say no change in policy. Uh, Secretary of State Blinken uh, said that uh, today. Talk to us about Biden's remarks and whether uh, Blinken said anything new today to the Asia Society convening at uh, my alma mater, George Washington University. Well, I like the way Secretary of State Blinken uh, put the Taiwan issue into context. Uh, but his main point is that the United States is not changing its Taiwan policy. It's China that is changing its approach to the cross-strait issue. And it's been doing that by trying to pick off the diplomatic partners of Taiwan one by one, putting uh, comprehensive pressure on Taiwan, including almost daily sort of air and naval um, sort of uh, harassment uh, maneuvers around Taiwan. Um, and that's what's really changing the spirit of uh, even the three communiques, not to mention our own Taiwan Relations Act, in which we're committed to maintaining the, the peace and security and making sure there's a sufficient uh, minimal defense, at least for, for Taiwan. Um, and so it's in that context, I think, that um, Secretary Blinken would have said, he didn't say it explicitly, but would have said the reason the president talks about this commitment um, repeatedly, really, that we have. And, 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 and I think that's the only nitpick you can make against the president, that he talks about our commitment to Taiwan. Well, he's vague on what that commitment is, because it's not really part of the Taiwan Relations Act. It's his political commitment and his political right. assessment that under his you know, administration, we would respond to naked aggression against Taiwan, because that goes against our agreements with China on cross-strait um, sort of peace and security. And by the way, and this is the other point that Secretary Blinken made today, this is an international concern. Um, and I think that's a warning shot to, to Beijing, that they are lining up the world on uh, concern about peace and security in the Taiwan Strait because of the unilateral change of the status quo that Beijing is making. I uh, couldn't agree with you more, uh, Patrick, uh, that the messaging in this case is being very nuanced. And I think what the president is doing uh, is is improving deterrence by adding a, a you know and making that case that that you know our beef is with your behavior that is outside would be outside global norms on that and it does not constitute uh, any uh, violation of the Taiwan Relations Act or anything else and indeed it, you know by, uh, Blinken deserves credit for having said you know you don't, it, we're not making a choice you versus you know us versus them um, which uh, is something that our allies and partners. Uh, in the region want, given how economically dependent they are on China. Uh, and Dove, I, let me bring, I, and, go, go ahead, but, Patrick. Yeah, I, I like the way that Danny Russell, the former Assistant Secretary of State for East Asia and the Pacific, and who also is part of the uh, Asia Society Policy Institute that sponsored Secretary Blinken today, he says that this is about strategic flexibility rather than strategic ambiguity. And I like that shift in U.S. policy and thinking, yes, there's still ambiguity, but really what we're trying to do is find flexibility so that we can maintain dynamic deterrence against a China that's unilaterally changing the status quo. 
in, in, indeed. Dove, uh, you just got back uh, from an ambitious uh, trip of your own. Uh, great to have you out and back on the road and back on the international scene, uh, even though I think you have been doing a little bit of a uh, little bit of traveling. Uh, you joined us last week from uh, Poland and giving your your sense. Uh, and then you went to Helsinki uh, before returning uh, to the States. Um, you know, I want to get your sense on what Biden achieved in the Pacific seen through a European lens. And then your takeaways uh, from our al important allies and partners, because I know you were meeting with many others at these conferences, right? I mean, it wasn't only Polish and Finnish officials. Sort of give us your, your sense. And Chris, thanks very much for being patient. I want to come to you in terms of the messaging and the optics on some of this uh, and, and whether or not some of these cleanup efforts on the part of the administration uh, are good or are actually pretty consistent and, and logical in a strategic context. Dove, take it away. Well, you know, uh, I think Patrick summed it up well, uh, and that's how the Europeans are looking at it. Yeah, there's a certain consistency here that I think the Europeans appreciate, because just as the Finns based their policy was, we will not break with Russia, Russia broke with us. Uh, Blinken is essentially saying the exact same thing about China. We're not breaking with China. They're breaking with us. And I think the fact that we are taking a consistent line both in Europe and in Asia, I think, is one that's appreciated in both theaters. Dov, what did the Finns have to tell you about Turkish opposition uh, to their accession to the alliance? Uh, obviously, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and the, and the Turkish leadership have made clear uh, that uh, they have their demands. As we discussed last week, uh, Jim Townsend artfully put it as, look, this is negotiating and the back and forth that one goes through regularly with Ankara. Uh, do, do the Finns regard this as sort of customary back and forth with, with the Turks? And is there confidence that they're going to get through? Or is there a concern that they won't? Ultimately, now, I, I think they're they're pretty confident, uh, unlike the Swedes, actually, they have reasonable relations with the Turks. They've been in touch with them. They, the Turks actually met with both Swedes and Finns uh, the other day um, and they laid out their demands there. But most of those demands actually are, are directed at Sweden. They, they're annoyed not just about the uh, PKK people that Sweden has. And Sweden's got about 28 of them. Uh, Finland only has a dozen or so, and they've actually extradited a couple already. Um, on top of that, the Turks are annoyed because the Swedes uh, have essentially refused to sell them anything. So uh, it's it's much more directed at Sweden. At least the, that's how the Finns see it. That's not they're not going to break with the Swedes, but they're pretty optimistic that this can get resolved. So. Uh, Again, and by the way, it's not just the Turks that are trying to give the, the Finns and the Swedes a headache. Uh, the Russians around yesterday, I believe, and said, well, you know, uh, if you guys, if you Finns really want to get into NATO, you better start rethinking your uh, administrative control of the Åland Islands, uh, which are self-governing but are controlled by the Finns. And uh, they're, I guess they're basically saying we're going to give you trouble over that. There's also a canal that goes from the middle of Finland into Russia. And the, the Russians said, well, we got to rethink that one. So they're bullying. But again, uh, the Finns don't take kindly to being bullied. Well, clearly, uh, a lot of sovereign nations don't take kindly to bullying, whether they're big or, or they're large. Um, and uh, you well, know, the, the, only, the only difference in 1939-40, they remember that. Um, they have seriously increased their defense spending 
They're at 1.96 of GDP right now, which is better than most of NATO. And uh, they just voted another 788 million uh, euros for 23 to 27 or 28, I believe, which is going to put them over 2%. So these guys are serious people. They really are with a serious industrial uh, complex. I mean, the question in any case of any uh, the refugee or asylum seeker is whether or not the Swedes can reconcile uh, their desire to get into NATO with Turkey's demands to turn over people uh, that Turkey may consider terrorists, but Sweden may not consider terrorists, right? I mean, uh, t- you know, a terrorist is in well, the eye of the beholder. As, yeah, as Jim Townsend said last week, this is only the beginning of a negotiation. And uh, the Turks clearly would like to get back into the F-35 program. They would like to get the F-16s that they think they're supposed to be getting. There are lots of ways to solve this one. And uh, quite honestly, and I think I said this last week as well, you know, if, if Russia is able to control the northern Black Sea, that's a huge problem for Turkey, and that might get them to rethink. And oh, by the way, remember that Turkish drones are knocking off Russians in Libya. They're knocking them off uh, in Ukraine, of course. They knocked them off in the Karno-Karabakh. And unofficially, they're not letting Russian warships into the Black Sea. And those warships would, of course, uh, supplement those that are already blockading Odessa and not letting grain get out. So the Turks are already acting pretty tough vis-a-vis the Russians. And if the Russians really do expand in the Black Sea, Maybe that'll be enough for the Turks to turn around and say, we're going to let the Swedes and Finns in. There are lots of different ways to solve this problem. And I think that's why both the Finns and the Swedes are reasonably optimistic. Um, I, I think one solution would be for Turkey uh, to ship uh, the, the S-series uh, air defense system they got from the Russians to the Ukrainians. And that would be a very elegant solution to the problem. And then it becomes a donation to a country uh, that could certainly use those systems, hit the reset button. Uh, and, and move ahead, obviously, with the F-35. Um, uh, one, one last uh, question, uh, uh, Dove, which is the progress of the war. What, what, what did you pick up in terms of where we are uh, in the conflict militarily? Obviously, there's a salient that's developing. The Russians uh, just have a lot of firepower. They're closer to their borders. Supply lines uh, are better. Uh, and the Ukrainians, um, you know, are, are, have been taking, bearing an incredible toll, and the Russians want to want to nip that salient off and try to grab as many Ukrainian forces in the process. Uh, what's sort of the sense on where we are uh, in the conflict? Well, I think the real issue now is uh, how do you define victory? The uh, Prime Minister of Poland spoke to the conference I was at and basically said, we're going to support Ukraine until it wins. Well, what does wins mean? Does it mean... Uh, winning back all the territory, including Donetsk and Luhansk, the two breakaway provinces? Does it mean cutting a deal and giving up land like Henry Kissinger has controversially recommended? Uh, We don't know what that means. And so, uh, you know, that I think is the big issue. The Russians have not been as successful uh, as they thought crossing rivers, for example. Yes, they've got a salient, but in other places, the Ukrainians are on the offensive. Uh, A lot of people think that the Russians uh, pretty soon are going to redefine their goals yet again, downward. So uh, the the real question becomes, when do both sides decide it's in their interest to negotiate? And that and I mean both sides, not just Russia, but Ukraine. 
what does Ukraine really want? Uh, and, and that's one that's still very much a question mark, because officially they say they want everything back. Um, and, and obviously in this, uh, the United States has said, look, I mean, it's for the Ukrainians to decide what they want. Certainly some European countries have been putting a little bit of pressure on Ukraine to go toward a negotiated settlement as quickly as possible. Um, let me ask you one last uh, question before moving on to Chris, who's been patiently uh, uh, waiting. Are, are the Ukrainians making a mistake in, in making the kind of statements that they've been making that NATO has done absolutely nothing for Ukraine uh, and some other criticisms, which to some, uh, even those not of a, the security com community, look at and go, wow, that's somewhat ungrateful. I want to get to this a little bit from a messaging standpoint with Chris in a minute. But do you think that that's a problematic message to take since, you, you know, one of the most important things Ukraine got that is allowing them to be as successful is actually operating and training with NATO nations over the past uh you know, two decades and certainly most intensively over the past eight, uh, six or eight years. Um, you know, what's what's your uh, sense um, on on that messaging and whether or not it's a successful or potentially alienating message, even if people understand the duress under which it's it's being made? Well, I didn't hear any criticism of Ukraine. Uh both in Poland or in Finland. I mean, all you did, all I saw were lots of Ukrainian flags. But if I were advising the president of Ukraine, I'd say, this is not what you want to be saying. Um, you don't, you, you know, you don't know how long this war is going to go on. You don't know how, whether you're going to have to go back, say, to the United States and ask for even more assistance beyond the 40 billion that the president signed off on. Um, why do you want to create opposition? The Republicans already are starting to grumble. Not all of them supported the $40 billion package. There's an election coming up. Uh, this is not a good thing to say, and, and it's just not necessary, quite frankly. Uh, indeed, that's uh, very good advice. Uh, frankly, I mean, uh, although, you know, you can understand from Kiev's perspective that they've been, you know, from their standpoint, pay for, patiently waiting since 2008. Nothing happened after 2014. Uh, and then all of a sudden, instantly, um, you guys are letting Sweden and Finland in. Um, Chris, let me bring you into the conversation. Uh, what did you make of the president's messaging, the Taiwan message? You heard uh, from Patrick, the nuance. We've been talking about nuance uh, on this program, and yet it's always clean up in aisle three whenever the president makes one of these statements, which tend to undermine the moral clarity that he tends to bring to some of these conversations. From your standpoint, um, you know, was was that an error? If not, why not? Uh, and is that nuance being conveyed, and particularly being conveyed uh, to the to the Chinese ultimately? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you see here is, as Patrick, um, you know, broke down for the audience is, is it's a multi-layered ch chess match um, that the, the Biden uh, administration is playing uh, with our allies in the region against the Chinese. Um, my sense from a messaging standpoint is that this may be more deliberate than we think. Flip side of the coin is, is that, you know, it looks like the administration doesn't have its act together. So they're either highly nuanced and trying to message to both the Chinese and our allies um, and maybe the American public. Um, sort of takes a back seat from a messaging standpoint, or the president made another gaffe. I, I don't, I guess I don't think so. I mean, you and I talked about this earlier in the day, and then, you know, I dug a little bit deeper. I mean, there are a number of uh, Asian outlets, including, uh, you know, Nikkei, um, who were there and, you know, saw the president 
closed his book. Uh, he started to take questions. They asked the Taiwan question. He opened his book back up, looked down and almost read his answer verbatim. So that doesn't tell me that you know, it was a gaffe. It tells me that they're happy to have Biden sort of be, you know, good cop or bad cop, if, if you will. And then, the, you know, the staff be the the other cop personality in a way of uh, executing that nuance that Patrick discussed. And Vago, can I just jump in? And I mean, I sure. very much agree with what Chris just said. I think one point is that the president was speaking in Tokyo. Um, so to a Japanese audience, first and foremost, our cornerstone ally if you want to think, what is, the, what is the way we can show and demonstrate and reassure our cornerstone ally that we're going to be there in the region? It's to show that we're committed even to the Taiwan security problem. So you can see how under, in that context, this was exactly the right place to make that uh, deliberate gaffe, if you will, uh, on behalf of deterrence. Uh, Chris, I want to get your sense also on sort of the Ukrainian uh, messaging uh, in this, um, right? I mean, you can understand that if your back is up against the wall, uh, you're going, you know, everything is about beat that drum as hard as you can, try to get people to give you more uh, assistance. Uh, you know, Ukrainians have used the degree of shame as a very powerful weapon. Hey, why aren't you guys doing more? And it's worked uh, in a lot of cases. I mean, I don't think we would have been where we are. Certainly, it is the sacrifice. Uh, of Ukrainian forces that has convinced everybody, hey, wait a minute, this is a winning team, right? We can take a risk with them. We can, uh, but is, is there a messaging challenge? I mean, Dove sort of gave, you know, both ends of that. Um, do, you, do you sense that there is a, a dangerous messaging problem on the part of Kiev here at a time when everybody is rather committed to helping them? I think for Kiev, there's a new uh, cycle problem um, that they're trying to um, negotiate, right? I mean, they're they're fighting literally for their lives. Um, I think they also believe that that in their fighting for their lives and in standing up to the Russians, they're helping to redefine the European security environment on, on behalf of the free world. Um, and I think they're wondering, you, you know, hey, how come we're not getting more public uh, support, and how come we're not getting all of the commitment that that you know they think they need, um, and I, I also think that they're savvy enough to know that um, there are other issues competing with Ukraine um, in a number of these capitals. So I mean that you know there are domestic issues, there are other international issues that are uh, are, are sort of making the Ukraine issue take a a backseat or or even further. Um, and so that's what they're having to, to deal with. I mean, if you look at just what's going on in the United States, I mean, the president was in Asia, gas prices continue to, uh, to rise. Um, you know, we have sort of the normal Memorial Day weekend uh, uh, headlines. Um, you, you know, there's all this stuff that is, uh, to say nothing of the, of the shootings that, that have occurred uh, over the last couple of weeks. Um, so there's all this stuff that is competing. And I, I think the U Ukrainians are very earnestly trying to um, have their own interests, both from a media standpoint and from a security standpoint, try to rise above that. So I don't think it's as, as simple as saying that it's a messaging issue. I, I think it's just that they want to remain front, um, frontmost in the minds of uh, the Europeans and Americans that you know could help them out. Vago, yeah, yeah, let me ahead. respond to that. I fully understand that. My concern, and, and let me tell you, I mean, I've given money to four different organizations that are supporting Ukraine. So I'm fully behind these guys. My concern is it's how you message. They definitely want to be on page one above the fold, which is absolutely right. But don't shake a stick at the people that are sending you stuff. 
And, and to the extent that there is a perception they're doing that, that doesn't help them. And so they have to look, they have to be, I think, a little bit more careful about how they make the case that's absolutely justifiable, but they need to be able to make it in a way that doesn't turn people off. Uh, wholly agreed. So Bago, could I, could I yeah, offer just one additional thought? I mean, th course. this is both what Patrick said in response to what I talked about with Asia and then Dove's response on what's going on in Europe. I mean, it really does sort of show um, how difficult uh, the media environment has become and sort of how lazy, I mean, we've all sort of become in, you know, you can't capture these complex issues in a tweet or a series of tweets or in a blog post. Um, and so that that's what I think makes uh, understanding what Biden, uh, the Biden administration is trying to do in Asia, as well as the back and forth that uh, Dove explained uh, that we're seeing in Europe. I mean, that, that's what makes it so difficult to uh, to really um, for the layperson to really understand and really wrap their uh, their arms around. Well, uh, so this takes me uh, to the next question in Great Bridge, uh, Chris, um, you know, your your mentor. Uh, and one of the finest people doing this job is John Kirby, uh, who has been the Pentagon spokesman, a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral, was the State Department spokesman, uh, was Mike Mullen's spokesman, uh, and uh, has been the Pentagon spokesman. And he's been named to uh, go over to the White House, uh, where, um, you know, I think he's going to bring an enormous skill set. Uh, and the way John would always characterize this is there are no multiple audiences. There's a global audience and stuff is more complicated than can go in a tweet. And as a consequence, it's important. He's been doing background routes. He does daily, almost daily on the record uh, conversations uh, on Ukraine and almost anything else to try to sort of pass that nuance around. And I have to say for somebody that senior, he tends to be remarkably open and available uh, to reporters. What's the skill set that John Kirby is going to be bringing the Pentagon, uh, bringing to the White House from the Pentagon? Well, I think he brings credibility having been the State Department spokesperson uh, at the end of the Biden administration, or excuse me, at the end of the Obama administration, now being a very visible spokesperson uh, at the Pentagon. Um, he brings, you, you know, security chops to the National Security Council as they work both um, sort of with allies behind the scenes and, uh, um, you know, out in the media. And, and I think he'll he'll be a good mentor and backstop on these issues, uh, you know, for the new uh, uh, White House spokesperson who, you know, while very talented in her own right, um, maybe isn't as uh, familiar or hasn't been uh, the voice on these issues um, for the administration. So it's, I think he becomes a good teammate. Uh, he be, brings that experience. And I mean, there's just, there's no better spokesperson today now that Jen Psaki has left, certainly, but there's no better spokesperson than, than John Kirby. And, and I think he's going to, you know, help make that team better uh, across the board. And, and Karine uh, uh, Jean-Pierre, obviously, um, fleeting up to replace Jen Psaki. But what's the difference between a spokesperson and a communicator, right? Um, uh, Karine is uh, an extremely uh, thoughtful and articulate spokeswoman. Um, what, what's the difference between a communicator and a spokesperson? There are lots of people that can provide good, sound communication advice to senior leaders, and they understand, you know, where um, an organization needs to go and what they need to do and how they achieve communication goals. 
it's another thing to stand at a podium on live television and be berated by uh, reporters and, um, you, you know, quickly on your feet, be able to, uh, you know, give answers that will air all around the world and make limited gaffes. So, I mean, it's just, it really is a different skill set. We're very lucky that John Kirby uh, and a few others are able to do both. Um, but I mean, that's the biggest difference. Most people grow into their, their role pretty quickly, um, you know, when they take over as, uh, as White, White House spokesperson. And I, I mean, I think we'll see that. Um, but I mean, John, having done it in a variety of different capacities, uh, will help her, you, you know, I think grow into that role even quicker. Is there a danger, uh, Patrick and uh, Dove and Patrick, let me uh, bring you into this, that the Ukraine conflict is, you know, as Chris said, we're going to, you know, we're going to look, we're going into uh, uh, a, a very, very contested uh, election season. Uh, there are going to be a lot of domestic issues that are going to float to the floor uh, for, I think the first story to uh, take the top of the New York Times, I believe, was the Roe v. Wade decision uh, that knocked Ukraine, Ukraine off of that top spot uh, for a bit. And sadly, we've had uh, tragedies uh, since uh, that have managed to to do that as well, um, you know, and in a sense that overturning Roe v. Wade is not about Roe v. Wade, right? I mean, that's the appetizer for turn, you know, for for the culture wars, right? I mean, people who thought that the culture wars had been won are are actually may not be won, and indeed, uh, any number of other issues from same sex marriage uh, to a lot of other uh, hot hot button issues may may now be on the table uh, after Roe uh, is is unwound. So, I mean, you can tell between now and, and the, uh, November, uh, it's going to be all politics all the time. Do you guys get a sense that Ukraine is steadily going to get pushed off uh, the, 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 the top spot uh, and, and become steadily background furniture? Uh, and if so, does that, does that, you know, is that going to be manifest itself uh, even in the administration where there are a lot of people who would much rather be talking about China than to be fighting, a, a helping fight a war uh, in, in Europe? Patrick, start us off and then dub your sense. Well, if Ukraine is not in the headlines, but we're still managing it well with allies and partners, that's fine. Um, and that means Russia hasn't escalated. Russia's not making strides. Maybe negotiations are uh, non-starters still or very slow to start. Um, but that's fine if that drops off the headlines for that reason. And, we're, and our headlines are focused on the domestic agenda. But if it falls off our government um, and we don't fulfill our commitments, we don't follow through, we uh, neglect what's happening on the ground, uh, neglect Ukraine, neglect our allies, then that would be a tragic. So I, I don't see that latter happening at this point. Um, but, you know, check back after November, check back uh, next year and make sure that we're keeping to it. I do know that Secretary Blinken today made the very big point that, look, we're going to continue on Russia and deal with that issue. It's a rules based order that affects us all. Uh, but we're also going to be focused on our on the Indo-Pacific and on China in particular. Dove? I agree with Patrick. I don't doubt that the administration will continue to support Ukraine. To me, that's not the issue. I think the issue is, will the Russians really penetrate Ukraine far more than they have? If they do, and if that does not make headlines, that is a huge worry. But uh, otherwise, I think Patrick's on target. In some respects, no news is good news. Uh, you don't, you know, the, the media likes to focus on other things. Elections are, after all, about domestic issues and economics and culture. Um, that's a surprise. Uh, 
but and, and I don't doubt, as I say, that uh, we will continue to support Ukraine because if we don't, uh, we have just uh, alienated most of our allies. They will be shocked. Uh, that is what they might have expected out of Donald Trump, not out of Joe Biden. So I don't think we're going to let them down at all. Um, uh, uh, Chris, I want to come to you in a second. But Dove, I just wanted to ask you this from a European perspective. Is there is anybody over there talking about um, breaking uh, the Russian uh, blockade? I mean, food prices around the world are going up. Yes, uh, there's yes. enormous amounts of yeah, Ukrainian yeah. grain. The Russians are targeting it. Yeah, they're trying to figure out how to do it. I think there's a, a determination that they will do it. As I said, the Turks are already helping by not letting uh, Russian warships into the Black Sea. Uh, they're trying to figure out, they being the allies and us, trying to figure out how to uh, find alternate routes uh, instead of out of Odessa. So the answer is yes. Uh, everybody recognizes that, and particularly the Europeans, because if there are food shortages, that means more immigration, that means more headaches for them. They definitely want to find some kind of solution. Chris, we already know that your concern is uh, that Ukraine might not stay in the headlines and so affect U.S. Uh, strategy and policy. Um, let me take you to the question of what Dove just said, right? Uh, it, there's no doubt that there are some in the administration who are looking at, at figuring out ways to sort of break the embargo as well, right? I mean, there's no way our European partners aren't discussing that and we not discussing it. I've heard that uh, as well from, from folks on how do we need to think about it. Uh, the case is being made, hey, you know, uh, a praying mantis would be a great way to try to do this dub. That's something that you mentioned some time ago as well. From from your standpoint, are we doing enough? Is the administration doing enough to be able to sell a an expansion of U.S. involvement in this to include military action? I thought it was absurd the way there was a reaction and the questioning people were asking, you know, the administration, well, you said there would be no troops on the ground. We're sending troops into Kiev. Every single American embassy on the planet is guarded by United States Marines. So I, I don't really regard that as a troop deployment, even if it is a very clever cover for us uh, to, uh, you know, in certain places on the planet have uh, certainly a military capability and to be able to do it legally. Um, you know, is the administration doing enough to message here? Uh, because I've got to say, for all of us who cried, do more, do more, do, the, the do more has been in the pipeline and they've unveiled it almost as we've called for them to do more, right? That suggests that the duck was churning more furiously under the water than we, we might have imagined. Sort of your sense on what more we have to do, what more the administration has to do, if we're going to pave the way to be able to do more in the future. Yeah, I, I mean, the short answer is I, I don't know, Vago, but but I'll caveat. Um, I mean, I do think they're doing everything they can to support um, Ukraine, to support our European allies, to limit the disruption of this conflict on the United States and to prevent us from being sucked into this militarily. And so when you try to balance all of those things, I think it limits your ability to do things um, you, you know, at the time that you would like to do them. And so it becomes not only a messaging challenge to keep all of our uh, you, you know, friends and allies on, on the same page, but it becomes a domestic messaging challenge. And so I, again, I continue to give the administration high marks. I, I just fear that they're gonna run out of balance um, as they try to keep all these uh, issues in line. 
Uh, last last thoughts, Patrick and Dove, before we end it for the week. Well, you know, Vago, um, when I think about the strategic bombers that China and Russia flew in East Asia this week uh, to send a signal, um, Secretary Blinken talked about how this was destabilizing and potentially uh, could lead to miscalculation. But it, in many ways, it's not just our military maneuvers. It's the things we invest in that are going to be key. So the CHIPS Act for semiconductor manufacturing and semiconductors that has bipartisan support. And Senator Mitt Romney was in the audience today in the uh, secretary's speech. Um, you know, that's the kind of investment that I think the secretary and the administration is talking about when we say we're going to have to invest and to align it with others and then to compete. Um, and when you when you have Foreign Minister Wang Yi doing a seven Pacific Island country tour in 10 days right now, uh, which he hopes to end with a new compact of security and economic cooperation with 10 countries. Uh, that may not happen, but that's what he's hoping to do. He's hoping to bribe them. Um, you can see we really are competing with China. So the more we get bogged down in America on divisiveness about culture wars and don't understand the kind of global competition we're in, and, and by the way, the competition we still have to compete, we have to cooperate with China on issues too. But if we can't compete with them successfully, we're going to be so disadvantaged for us, for our children, our grandchildren uh, in, the, in the coming decades. So it's really this longer term competition that we have to get serious about and urgent today. Last thought is that the secretary kept emphasizing the word, um, you know, decisive decade, the words decisive decade. And so they, they get the message that this is all happening right now in the 2020s. This fight for this century is being determined right now. And so we need the investments in our military, but also in our technology, in our human capacity, in our economy, with our allies and partners. Here, here. Uh, well said. Dove? Well, I think uh, on the European side, which is where I just came from, I can say the following. First, the Poles would like to see a permanent uh, American stationing of troops on their territory. Um, we're getting closer to that. Uh, I think it might happen. But a much larger issue is how do you think about Russia? Until very recently, we basically said Russia was second order. I mean, President Obama said they were only a regional power. Uh, we now say they're important as a problem. But, you know, it's still a focus primarily on China. And I think we're going to have to face up to the reality that both China and Russia are major headaches. They're different kinds of headaches. Uh, Russia clearly doesn't have the economic clout, the ability to run around the world, and as Patrick pointed out, hand out money. Uh, but on the other hand, Russia is right next door to all our NATO allies, not all, but a significant number of our NATO allies, and is in a position to threaten them. We're going to have to watch both of them. And uh, we constantly assert that we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Well, we're going to have to prove that. Couldn't agree with you uh, more uh, on that. And Chris, any any last thought as we uh, wrap uh, for this uh, holiday weekend? Sure. Mine is on a, uh, a much later note uh, with Memorial Day weekend, the unofficial start of the summer movie season. Vago, you know where I'm going. I had the chance I to see Top Gun 2 Maverick this week. For our audience, if you're looking for two hours and 15 minutes of mindless, enjoyable entertainment, go see that movie. It was such a great movie and uh, it'll help get your mind off of Russia and Ukraine and China, but get you motivated for our uh, men and women serving uh, in the armed forces as well. So that, that's my two thumbs up endorsement. Uh, and indeed, uh, Memorial Day, uh, obviously uh, a, uh, a sacred role uh, in that uh, to remember all of those who've uh, given their lives in service of their country. 
uh, and so important uh, important to bear that in mind. And the blood shit was on Mav's jacket. Yes, it was. Back there into the danger zone. <laughs> Back into the danger zone. Exactly. Put your Kenny Loggins on. Uh, and uh, was there any Kenny Loggins in the movie, Chris? Uh, was, was there any any uh, r- real touchstones uh, to the uh, the 1986 great? Well, the uh, Top Gun anthem, uh, you know, the notable sound uh, continues. And yes, there was uh, in the opening as they were on the flight deck, there was uh, Kenny Loggins music. So it had everything for both the young generation and the old generation like us. And was the opening deck sequence as good as the original? Opening it was very deck good. Sequence? It was very good. And the, I okay. mean, the flying is amazing. So, yeah, two thumbs up. OK. And the Skunk Works guys will be uh, happy about it as well. They, they should. Uh, I've, I've always told the, the Navy that they should set up a recruiting stand right there uh, outside every theater and, and they'll be able to, to make uh, make goal. And it continues to attract people to naval aviation. Right, Chris, uh, even though your dad was a naval aviator, you uh, you were attracted to the United States Navy and to aviation as well. Right. Top Gun played a role. It played a, a huge role. My kids came out wanting to be aviators, whether it's Naval or Air Force or Army. I mean, they just wanted to fly. So uh, I think it's a win for all the, the armed forces. Uh, outstanding. Hope you guys have a very, very uh, good holiday. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Have a great week. Look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.